Andrew, it is such an amazing day. I thought it would never come. And I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should read a physics book or go to a bar and play darts. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I thought you were talking about the season three premiere of the podcast, <laughs> but I'm guessing it's something else. Well, both of those things would work for that. It's the dart mission. which Of I mean, course. Isn't that cool? It's, it's the, today. It's the crazy sci-fi movie dart mission, which we should tell people about because that won't make any sense. Well, and actually, now they can all go watch all those movies again because they're going to know more about what happens. I mean, so for folks who haven't heard, this is a, a mission that launched like 10 months ago where they're sending a spacecraft to an asteroid to slam into it on purpose. To deflect it from the Earth. Exactly. I mean, well, at least to, te to test out whether we can do this. Exactly. I mean, because we, we might need to do this in the future, and it's going to take a while to really figure out how to do that. So let me ask you, Katie, okay. as the astronaut in the room, is this just crazy stuff, or is this something that we really should be doing? Oh, this is totally what we should be doing. I mean, because these things, I mean, these are real. I mean, there are like 27,000 right. near-Earth asteroids. And a near-Earth, everybody should just stay calm. Near-Earth is like millions of miles away. Right, but it right. does just mean that they're in... In the neighborhood. Exactly. And, you know, there are these movies, but we, we have seen... We have seen asteroids, you know, hit the Earth, of course. meteors that cause a lot of damage. And of course, the crazy thing is, we know this will happen. This is not just one of those things that might happen. At some point, a large asteroid will hit the Earth. The question is, when and are we prepared? Exactly. And what I really love about this testament, so there's a big asteroid and a little asteroid. And the big one is half a mile across. And the little one is the size of like almost two football fields. And we're right. going to hit the little one. Basically, the little one is like a moon. We call it a moonlet. And it's orbiting that asteroid. And it's going to slow it down enough that it changes that orbit. Or we're going to see if that's what we did. This is going to be really interesting to watch. I, I want to know, Andrew, as a physicist, do you think this is a good idea? And if it's such good physics, why do we have to do it? Uh, I don't know. The, the physics works if you're a long, long way away from the Earth. So we've got to have those long-range detection systems. It really doesn't work if the impact is imminent. Right. And this is like 6 million miles away. Yeah, so it's actually some distance away, yeah. But it does mean we've got to get better at actually detecting these things so we can actually send out the, the rockets or bombs or whatever they are a long, long time before these things even get close to Earth. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking, what do we do about space debris? Well, and this time, you know, these really are things that can be close to the Earth, close to the space station, but even way out in space where satellites are. So it's a really important topic. It is. And of course, for people like you that go up into space, this is a, a life or death thing. But the thing that really gets me about this topic is it's not only folks up in space. It's the fact that so much of our lives depend on what orbits the Earth, those satellites, the GPS systems, the communication systems. This is really an existential issue if those systems go out. Well, it's a big, big problem. But before we get to our really amazing guest, it's weekly obsessions time. Andrew, where have you been this week and what are you thinking about? <laughs> the obsession that I have is actually about Antarctica. So I'm taking a group of students out to Antarctica in December. You are with, not. I am with, with one of my colleagues, yes. With your podcast buddies, right? 
I'm sorry. Well, actually, yes. You know, you know, with the the magic of podcasts, you can all come. Anyway, <gasps> so, so cool. we're. we're, we're it, it is going to be really cool, taking this group of students out to the Antarctic Peninsula and various other places. But in preparation for this, we have a whole semester of prep for this. And I ended up watching Werner Herzog's documentary, Encounters at the End of the World. This is a 2007 documentary. Um, and I was just loving this because anybody that's watched this or anybody that knows anything about research in the Antarctic is just how quirky and how weird and how awe-inspiring and mind-blowing it all is. So that's been my obsession. Just a little bit of prep for this trip. Oh, Andrew, I am so happy that you're going. And these students, I mean, it will change everyone's life. That's it, yes. I was going to mention Antarctica as well, because my obsession is about the sort of six degrees of separation and how we all run into each other at some point or another. Mm -hmm. So I was reading about DART, since it's such a cool day that this is actually the day the collision will happen. And of course, reading through interviews. And one of those interviews was with a woman named Nancy Chabot. Mm -hmm. And I was in Antarctica with Nancy Chabot. We were, we were on, on a meteorite collection expedition, mm -hmm. and she's a meteorite scientist. And so she's gone from that to actually you know directing part of this program and, and leading a big part of it. And it just makes you realize that the family that is exploring is just, it's always growing. And at the same time, you can, when you come to reunions, you're always going to find people that you know, and then they're doing sort of even more different things than when you met the last time. Andrew, I just have to say that I really loved Antarctica. And when you're there, it is so big. Yes. And the horizon is so far. And you realize that there are so few of you that ever get to see this. And, and I think there's just something about that's what, you know, exploration is. And that's what we do on the podcast. Okay, let's get back to our big question. What do we do about space debris? This past year, the Biden administration released the National Orbital Debris Implementation Plan, a document intended to guide the actions of the U.S. government in addressing the challenges of orbital debris. And that's all of the junk. I mean, it's dead satellites, pieces of old spacecraft orbiting the Earth at terrifying speeds. And all of these bits of junk hurtling through space pose a real risk to human spaceflight, to space stations, and to the thousands of satellites circling the Earth. And the situation is getting worse, actually. 2021 saw a record number of new satellites launching into space, around 1,800. I mean, that's a jump of almost 40% over last year. And so clearly all of this rapidly multiplying junk spinning around our planet poses a risk to lives of those who go to space, as well as to many of the satellite-enabled technologies that we take for granted, like GPS, for instance. But what can we do about it? To get answers, we spoke with someone who's doing deep and important work on this problem. Maura Baja is an associate professor of aerospace engineering and orbital mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. In 2021, he and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak created Privateer, a company that's developed technologies to track orbital debris and improve safety in low Earth orbit. This is a fascinating glimpse into the nature and scale of the space debris problem and what can be done to address it. Mara Bajal, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here with all of you. You work with orbital debris. What do you do with it? Yeah, so I actually physically don't do anything with debris, but... Uh, <laughs> My training and my education is in astrodynamics. What it, What is astrodynamics? Astrodynamics is easily put, it's just the science that studies 
how and why things move in space the way they do. I started working out for NASA, uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, doing Mars missions, but then ended up switching to uh, supporting the U.S. Department of Defense in regards to their space needs. And that's when I became acquainted with all the rubbish, as it were, orbiting the Earth. I mean, there'd be times that we'd be up there and they see like, oh, in a couple days or even a couple of weeks, we think that has a possibility of hitting the space station. You know, and it would be just something they're going to watch. It would be green and then it would be closer, more probable, be yellow. And then if it was red and they had time, they would move the space station physically. But often, you know, there, there wouldn't be time. And so we'd have to, you know, really understand the risks. And sometimes we're climbing into our Soyuz, our rescue vehicle, you know, ready to depart if needed. So it's something real, but something that I, I know I've had a hard time explaining is how can they not know whether it's going to hit or not? Where does all this uncertainty come from? But before that, maybe you could talk about why there's so much stuff up there. Yeah. So the where this stuff comes from, you know, we started launching things in 1957 with Sputnik. We put robots in a space to do stuff that benefits us, presumably, like providing services and capabilities such as position, navigation, timing, financial transaction stamps, communications, now internet with Starlink and, and OneWeb and these sorts of things. So in fact, humanity gets to know more about itself and the planet we evolved on because of services and capabilities provided by space assets. So I think that's an important thing uh, for people to know, not the least of which is, you know, monitoring like wars in Ukraine and that sort of stuff. Right. So satellites provide unique information and data to help us. Now, usually the end state for everything that we put in orbit is for it to become junk because mm -hmm. eventually it stops working. So things that die on orbit keep on going at the very high speeds that they were several times the speed of a bullet and things that are sufficiently low eventually end up re-entering, not always burning up in the atmosphere as we've seen from Chinese rocket bodies, but most of the stuff up there stays up there for decades, centuries, or even forever. And because of that, we just send something else up, and then we send something else up, and then something else. And these orbital highways where we put these satellites, these robots in space, these orbital highways are basically becoming more congested as a consequence of that. And so now we went from one object in 1957 to tracking over 50,000 objects ranging in size from the cell phone to the space station. And these are in different orbital highways and that sort of thing. So, so we, we clearly have a problem. I mean, I, it's very easy to imagine that we're just dumping more and more stuff almost at an exponential rate into this sort of volume around the Earth. I, clearly, there's a challenge here. You mentioned these orbital highways. Does this mean that there is a greater preponderance of junk in some places than other places? And if so, why is that? Yeah, that, that's exactly what that means. Depending on what we want the satellite to do, there are these kind of Goldilocks places to put the satellite mm. where we don't have to fight the forces of nature to kind of keep the thing there. So, for instance, there's this orbital highway called the geosynchronous belt, where if you put a satellite there, it takes it about 24 hours to go around its orbit once. And so it's great for communications. There's sun-synchronous orbits. There are, so there are other kind of orbital regions that are ideal, depending on what we want the satellite to do. And so right. 
the debris is really where we put the satellites. And so that's why it's not random. It's in very specific places. You know, for many, many years, we've tracked everything bigger than 10 centimeters, like baseball size, right? Mm -hmm. I think the number was something like 27,000 objects that were being tracked by at least the US DOD. Mm -hmm. And then we've developed different ways to be able to understand what debris is up there. And we can see smaller and smaller. And now we can track things, even the size of a centimeter to half, two or three, so it's much smaller things. And as soon as we started counting in that way, the number jumped to more like half a million objects that are being tracked. I mean, that's why this conversation with you is so urgent, really, is that this stuff is all up there right now, along with all the you know, assets that take care of us and take care of Earth. And, and yet the process is continuing, and how do we change the slope of how we're doing that and what do we do about what's left? Yeah, so um, there are a couple of threads that I want to pick from what you just said. For one, I really want to make the distinction between detecting stuff and tracking things. And so the sensors detect. Sensors sense, but the sensors themselves don't track. Tracking is something that algorithms provide. Tracking is the interpretation of the detections from the sensor. And most of the stuff up there, because it's not working anymore, doesn't transmit its identity. And so we actually have an identity crisis in space. And this gets to the uncertainty that you brought up earlier. If we're tracking objects, why is it that things are so uncertain? It's because these things aren't reporting their identity and we don't have uh, ubiquitous sensing. We're not observing every object all the time. And because we only collect samples of detections at different times over different spaces, Algorithms have to then sort through the bucket of just detections to try to figure out that identity crisis. And because the evidence of the detections doesn't lead to a single conclusion, multiple hypotheses, multiple beliefs right. explain the evidence. And this is where the uncertainty uh, exists. So, so this seems really important because in my head, I had this idea of space radar that just sort of scanned the area. And those maps you see with little blips on the radar, it's clearly not like that in any way whatsoever. We're having to sort of either sort of guess or sort of model where these, these bits of stuff might be in many cases. So let me just kind of describe in general what the process is, right? It's like, and this can be applied to many things. So there's stuff happening that we care about. In this case, let's say that it's the, the population of interest are all the objects orbiting the Earth. So to know something, you have to measure it. To understand it, you have to predict it. We can't measure the entire population. We can only measure samples of it. And what we hope to do is from the samples, draw conclusions about the entire population right. from the samples. But all those conclusions are going to be mired in uncertainty. And so... There's stuff happening. How do we know it's happening? We have to measure it. We have sensors. The output from the sensors are data. The data at first seem to be haphazard, but as we observe more and more data coming in, which I'll call evidence from here on, as evidence comes in, the evidence seems to follow distributions or have patterns or have structure in it. Those patterns and that structure in the data, in the evidence, allows us to formulate models or hypotheses or beliefs. And these models and hypotheses or beliefs then let us predict. Right. But the difference between what we observe next and our predictions constitutes what I call statistical surprisal. And so the thing is, if we model everything exactly and perfectly, we will predict exactly what we observe next. That's never the case. So surprisal 
is actually an indication that there's something that you don't understand and an opportunity for you to hopefully learn something. So yes, we have to have models. The models are used in a predictive sense. We can never predict exactly what we observe. And we're in this constant refinement of the models based on the evidence. And the evidence is incomplete. It's biased and it's noisy. And that makes things more difficult. Marva, I'd be interested in hearing you talk about the National Orbital Debris Implementation Plan. Mm -hmm. And what is this? Why should people care about it? What do you think it's going to do? And and if you think that answer isn't good, what do you think we should do? Yeah, I'm actually very happy to see this uh, come out of the White House. And maybe I'm a bit biased, but certainly parts of it read as if I would have written it myself. So that makes me very happy to see that, actually. It always shows that you're actually doing something right when somebody's listening. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, pretty much most of the things that I've said with the need to characterize objects and funding the research and development to do those sorts of things and the reason why we need to do that, like all that is reflected in the document. And so Mm -hmm. I'm very happy with that. Um, Even beyond that, there are organizations that are identified next to each thing that needs to get done. So that's even better. But the thing to make it real is for Congress to actually fund those organizations, A, and then B, hold them accountable for delivering on what's in the plan. Right. That's the thing that's missing. I would just like to point out that from an environmentalist perspective, What we're doing to space is not unlike what we've done to the land, to the oceans, and the air. Space is just the next thing that we're doing it to. And so it points to a larger problem, the larger problem of not looking at ourselves as stewards of spaceship Mm -hmm. Earth. And so when people say, well, what do you think is the largest challenge? Is it technical? Is it policy, political? I say the largest challenge is the absence of empathy to solve these problems. So so this to me is so fascinating, and I love the, the connection with what we've done and what we haven't done on Earth. But how do you get people concerned about space? And of course, when we look at the Earth, you've got the whole tragedy of the commons problem where everybody says, we really care about this. It's just, it's not my job. It's somebody else is going to do it. Presumably, we have exactly the same problem with space. How do you recruit empathy? How do you successfully recruit empathy across humanity for this? And I think the biggest problem when it comes to this sort of stuff, Andrew, is people see themselves as independent. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things that has motivated me as a space environmentalist was my experience of certain indigenous cultures, mm-hmm. Native Hawaiian, Inuit, that sort of stuff. And there's something that exists called traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge. There's some principles and tenets that are common across many of these indigenous people, and they tend to believe that all things are interconnected. And I subscribe to that as well. I very much embrace the idea of complex systems, uh, that we don't know all the interdependencies, that there are causal relationships that are very nonlinear, meaning a small Mm -hmm. cause can have a huge effect, like butterfly effect. So the idea of interconnectedness is something that these folks hold near and dear to their heart. If you actually believe that there is no such thing as true independence, then it's implicit that your brother's problem is your own as well. It's implicit that the problem across the globe is your own as well. And if you don't see that, it's because you're not looking far enough, you're not looking deep enough, you're not looking long enough. Because people might be able to escape the consequence over their lifetime, but their children and their children's children, it's inescapable. And so that's the thing 
that I think people are very reluctant to say, I want to do something about it. If they believe themselves to be independent, oh, that's somebody else's problem. That doesn't affect me. I shouldn't care. My job as a space environmentalist, especially in my role as chief scientist uh, for Privateer, is to can I aggregate an Uber set of data and information from across all disciplines to show humanity evidence of this interconnectedness? And in that, recruit empathy, which I'm going to define as the ability for people to project themselves into the perspective of another. If I can do that and hold their attention and say, here's evidence that it is your problem, then people are going to be more reticent to say, I don't care. And so that is my challenge to Mm -hmm. show evidence of the interconnectedness. And Moraba, I love looking at your site. One of the things that's on there, it says, we're committed to helping humanity treat the space environment as if our lives depend on it. Exactly. Because they do. That's right. And to the point with the indigenous cultures is that because they believe in this interconnectedness and they don't believe themselves to be owners of anything, not the land, not right. but as stewards of it. So interconnectedness, stewardship as an intergenerational contract that they have with the life around them that they're connected to. Indigenous people, every day when they wake up, it, they're in existential crisis. If they don't tend to the waterhole, if they don't uh, do the right hunting, if they overfish over this, over that, if they fail to have a successful conversation with the environment, they die. Right. We don't live our lives that way because we just assume we're not an existential crisis. And if we are, somebody else is taking care of that. You think about what the consequences would be if our space ecosystems fail. And we are already so dependent on them that they would be catastrophic. But that is partially invisible to people and partially it sort of happens over long time periods. How do you make that real to people? Right. So this is where I have to put on my kind of scientific hat and again, look at this as trying to create a big data problem for myself to let machines find the causal relationships in this hyperdimensional data and heterogeneous information cube to then say, Given evidence of how humanity has behaved, and we see this again, land, ocean, and air, we see how that is being replicated for space. And if we use these models based on this evidence, when we predict what the future looks like, this is how it plays out. When everybody is just launching whatever they want, when they want, and we just keep on creating this debris, this is what we predict will happen. So something that really resonated with me that you said was, talking about this idea of stewardship. And something that intrigues me here is, I think you can look at that two ways. You can look at it in a very pragmatic way and say, we've got to be stewards of the environment we live in or stewards of space, because if we're not, we'll be harmed. At least if not us, people that come after us, society will be harmed. But then there's another aspect of it that says we should do this because it's the right thing to do. Forget about sort of good or harm. Part of our responsibility as humans is to be stewards. Do you see sort of those two different sides of things or are they one and the same to you? To me, they're they're one and the same, but I can tell you, I've had people come up to me and say, here's the deal, man. You're on this kind of soapbox of environmentalism and doing things for altruism. The people you just spoke to could give a damn about your altruistic blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, it's how does it affect what their pocketbook? And if you can't speak to them in terms of things that they're going to lose as right. a consequence, 
they're not going to care. Right. And that's the reality, my friend. I guess you could throw their soul in there as well. I mean, they risk losing their soul. Yeah, you know, that nobody's budging. <laughs> on, doesn't on that really one. No, right. no, that's not really the thing that's bringing action to the table. Right, so. right, right. You know, a dozen years ago, Marba, you were probably going to these things too. There'd be sustainability meetings where there'd be companies that were saying, you know, we are going to actually make investments that are sustainable. We're not going to invest in things that are not. And mm -hmm. people were like, I want to go with companies that do that. And people, people are voting with their pocketbooks about who's working in sustainability or not. How can we make that happen in space? It all comes down to governments. And the thing is, from an international law perspective, liability for damage and harm and all this other stuff falls on states parties to these treaties with the UN. Governments have in Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, right, provide authorization and continued supervision of space activities as well. Governments could just decide with themselves, if in order for you to get licensed, you have to demonstrate sustainable practices, right. you have to be eco-friendly, you have to be these things. And, and building, building things out of the right stuff that is going to actually yeah. dissolve, not dissolve, but that's um, right. going to burn up on the way down and not come back to Earth and not stay up in space. And governments are not doing that. That's the thing. And so when I speak to people that are government officials, what I hear is, look, you know, we're starting at this science and technology game late. Um, we want to catch up. Um, other people are doing this sort of thing. And look, most of the rubbish up there is due to the US, China, and Russia. So why should I care? I wasn't the one who started this. So I'm just going to fund and support anybody from my country to just launch and do stuff, learn by trial and error to catch up so that we're not at this disadvantage. And I'm like, that's the wrong way to approach this. Um, but you know, who's listening to me kind of thing. So, so governments are the ones that could actually make this change immediately. And they won't because people are afraid of election cycles and, and all this other stuff. And it, it's, yes. It's so, is this, so is this where the empathy comes in? Presumably, if you had enough people who thought and, and articulated the importance of this, that would potentially affect governments. Absolutely. If you look at, I'm going to say, government, academia, industry, people, this whole spectrum, where are the solutions going to come from? It sounds like you don't think government is going to be the initiator. Government is not going to be the initiator. Government will go along with something that looks pretty good that it can kind of save some face with. So this really is a coalition of the willing. It's people from all walks of life coming together and just doing things the right way because it's the right thing to do and demonstrably leads to environmentalism and sustainability. And when I can work with folks in Russia, China, and other countries at academic levels, maybe pr private industry type stuff, and just agree to do things together to demonstrate the capability to actually work harmoniously and holistically, I think that's the thing. The grassroots thing is the thing that will incentivize and help governments see how to possibly do these things. So how do we get that? How do you get that grassroots movement going? How do you light a fire under people? So I can tell you that I've been involved in space situational awareness since 2006, and it's 2022, and I haven't achieved that yet. And I can tell you that I'm not enough, but I'm working hard on it, man. And I'm starting to try to make this more mainstream. I'm going outside of space circles, and I just got featured in, in CNN's Tech for Good with mm -hmm. the work that I'm doing for space traffic kind of stuff. 
I'm trying to pitch a TV show called Shifted Space, where I'm like a Tony Bourdain for space and I'm traveling around the world, having real raw, yeah, raw conversations with people about stuff, doing podcasts and things like that. And I realize it makes me realize that I'm not enough. I want to see more people like me uh, and I'm trying to grow those and incentivize those. And I can see that there's evidence that more people are, look, I finally got space environmentalism to be formally scientifically kind of accepted in, in nature and in mm-hmm. journal, the case for space environmentalism. And so I, I can see signs that things are moving in that direction, but things take time and they should. I mean, we need to be inclusive, right? People need to be on board. This can't just be three people that say, hey, I have the right idea. I'm smart. We should do it my way. Right. No, people need to be brought on board and things take time. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the sheer technical difficulty. I mean, I have not heard of a good physical solution for how do we clean up what we already have out there, given that we're getting to be better about not putting it up there. I mean, there's a lot of companies that say this is what they're going to do, but has anybody come up with something to go up there and clean up what's there? Exactly. And so one of the things that I've said forever in this is that this problem is transdisciplinary. It goes beyond disciplinary boundaries. And some people will say, oh, it's just about radars. And that's stupid. Other people say, oh, it's just about the space laws. That's also equally dumb. So it's all of these things. It's, it's social science, anthropology, astrodynamics. It's all these things combined and fused in a way that goes beyond disciplinary boundaries. So yeah, one thing I can tell you, Katie, that I am a strong believer in is it's the space sustainability rating that the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. started off which European Space Agency, MIT, and myself at UT Austin, Bryce Technologies, we're part of phase one of that. And it's supposed to be something like a system kind of like, okay, five-star restaurant, five-star hotel, five-star space sustainability rating kind of stuff. And because it's being developed outside of specific governments now, the Ecole Polytechnique Federal de Lausanne in Switzerland is leading phase two. I believe that governments could use this and say, hey, you have to score this much on the space sustainability rating or you don't get licensed to operate in space. So more about JAR, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I think we're going to have to come back to this topic. But before we go, you've talked about getting people engaged, getting people excited, sort of raising levels of empathy. What is one big takeaway you would like to see from this conversation? What would you like to tell people to go out and do or think or be? I think, yeah, the thing that I would like for people to take away from this is that for a moment, hold the the hypothesis or the belief that all things are indeed interconnected. Seek to be surprised at, if you're observant, if you look at your surroundings, to see the evidence of how things are interconnected. And again, open up your mind to different timescales beyond just your lifetime and these sorts of things. And then in that space, consider the possibility of behaving in a way where you're not just a passenger of Spaceship Earth, you're a crew, and that you embrace stewardship as if your life depended on it. That is the thing that I would love for people to be able to at least consider. So well said, Marva. So thank you for explaining this very complex situation to all of us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space. Podcast. Audio format. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space.
Andrew, I, I saw a range of emotions, including I thought you were going to maybe going to cry. Okay, so, <laughs> so, most of it looked kind of horrified. <laughs> no, I was listening to this, and I was thinking this sounds like I've been buried in some tin container underneath some freeway somewhere, and I can sort of hear the traffic going over my head. And I'm trapped. It was quite a visceral response. So I know it's not, a, well, I'm assuming it's not on Earth. So the only thing I can think of is you're up on the International Space Station and somebody has buried you in a tin can somewhere and you can hear everything going on outside with that little echoey sound. I have no idea. What was it, Katie? <laughs> what you heard was the sound of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Perseus galaxy cluster more than 240 million light years away. So close, but no cigar. Yeah, not that close. <laughs> not that close. Um, explosions from this black hole produced ripples in the ultra-hot gas spread throughout the galaxy cluster. These ripples are immense sound waves. Andrew, they are 30,000 light years across. That's just crazy. It, and there's a period of oscillation of 10 million years. Whoa! <laughs> These notes are 57 octaves below middle C on the piano. Okay. I mean, the sound has been transposed upwards to bring it into the audible range about 144 quadrillion times higher than the original pitch. So that's okay. why you didn't recognize it, okay? Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but now I have, this, I have this image of a celestial piano, just sort of massive with people sort of playing those low notes. I like that. So this data was actually taken from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, my favorite telescope, of course, launched by the of crew course. of SDS-93 and sonified by the great folks at System Sounds. So that was the sound of a supermassive black hole. I love that. And I love actually how humanizing it is. And so sort of me thinking this sounds like a very sort of human soundscape, but in actual fact, it's this sort of ginormous, humongous, unbelievable thing that's happening that we brought to a human scale. Incredible. Let's listen to that again. it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU and send us a tweet, comment, question, and please recommend us to your friends. That would be so awesome. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our producer is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.